I told my wife this morning that we have a lot of ground to cover, and I didn't know how we'd be able to wrap it all up, and so she gave me some great advice. I, I can always count on her. She said, just start by saying the words, in conclusion. So, yeah, great advice. Thank you, sweetie, and, and I'll make sure that we put that to work. I don't know that that's the right way to start our introduction, but in due course, we'll get to the words in conclusion. We'll wrap it up. But over the last several weeks together, we've been looking at several verses in Ephesians chapter 5 that have helped us to understand the results of being filled with or thrust forward by the Holy Spirit. You see, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ to the saving of our eternal souls, God takes up residence inside of us through His Holy Spirit, and we are then a new creation. Did you know that? That's what the Bible teaches. We become a new creation. And I want you to know that this is the miracle of salvation. This is the new birth. You see, at that point, all things become new for us as we learn to yield ourselves to the direction and the control of the Holy Spirit, we become more mature. That's the process of sanctification. We become stronger spiritually. And the more we subject ourselves to his leading, the more we subject ourselves to his, uh, to allow him to guide our decisions in our lives, the more we are then thrust forward by him. And that's what life in the spirit is all about. That's really what it means. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It means that we are guided and that we are led by him, that we are thrust forward by him and that we are controlled by him. It means that we are driven, we are driven forward under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. It means we allow him to guide us and we allow him to lead us and give us direction. You see, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we develop this sense of humility and we develop this sense of lowliness. One of the results of that sense of humility is that our relationships become right. Did you know that? First of all, our relationship toward God becomes right. We begin to sing and we begin to declare the greatness and the holiness of our God. And we are continually thankful. We are humble. Our relationship with Him is right. It is made correct because we see ourselves in the proper posture before an almighty and holy God. But I want you to know, and I've said this several times over the past few weeks, not only at that point does our relationship with God begin to change, but we need to understand that our relationships with others are also changed as well. Did you know that? It's important for you to grasp that because it is the filling of the Holy Spirit, is the guiding of the Holy Spirit that empowers us in our humility to consider others as better than ourselves, according to Philippians 2.3. We then are able to consider others as higher than ourselves. And I want you to know that as we develop that lowliness of mind, we then find ourselves doing what Ephesians 5.21 tells us. Take a look at this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We begin to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. As we noted several weeks ago, friends, this is really the key to having right relationships. This is the key to having godly relationships with one another. We must learn to submit to one another. I want you to know the key to right relationships is to learn to submit. That's not fun, is it? 
But the key to right relationships is being able to submit to one another. Now listen, because of the nature, because of the character of Jesus Christ, because of our reverence for him, because of our own lowly self-view, we submit our wills, we submit our desires, we submit our passions to one another out of reverence for Christ. Not because one another deserves our reverence, but it's because of our reverence for Christ. And because of that, we then are empowered to submit to one another. We know that's true, don't we? It would have to be. Because the last time we were together, we discovered that as a product of the curse, we know that the woman's desire is to control her husband in Genesis chapter 3, and we found that he will rule over her. Her desire is to control him, but he will rule over her, the Bible tells us. And I want you to know that without the filling, without the leading of the Holy Spirit, the wife could never submit to her own husband, as was Paul's instruction. Women say amen. I know that's true. And I want you to know that without the filling of the Holy Spirit, husbands, you could never love your wives. You could... <laughs> Oh, boy. (laughs) It's going to be a long message. (laughs) Careful, fellows. (laughs) The husband could never love his wife the way that God requires of us without the filling of the Holy Spirit. We could never love our wives in a way that is consistent with the instruction of the passage that we're going to study today. And so to get us started this morning... I'm going to take you all to Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 25, and we're going to just take it one piece at a time if we could do that. And we're going to start with just four little words. So let's take a look at the first part of Ephesians 5.25, and this is what it says. Husbands, do what? Love your wives. That's simple enough, right? Husbands, love your wives. And as those of you who have been with us for quite some time will know, the Greek language has several different words which can be translated into English as love. The highest form of love is the Greek noun agape. And oddly enough, that is the one that we find here in this verse. This is the love of the will. This is the love of self-sacrifice. And that's the form that's here in verse 25. And as you can clearly see in this particular verse, the verb is found in its imperative form. Isn't that interesting? So it is a command for us to love our wives. So we are commanded, guys, to love our wives. Husband, love your wives. That's what Paul says. But what you don't realize probably by looking at this is that in the original language, we would parse this verb by saying that it is a present active imperative. You got that, Denise? I saw her shaking her head. Did you see that? I don't know how to say that. How do you sign present active imperative? But that's what it is. So now listen, the fact that it's in its active form indicates to us that it is an imperative which requires continuous action. Do you see the significance of that? It requires continuous action. And so what that means to us is that we would do well to translate the verse by saying it this way, guys, husbands, be continually loving your wives, you see? Be continually loving your wives. So I want you to know that it's Paul's intent here that as a husband, I am to be continually loving. I am to be continually sacrificing. I am to be continually giving up my own will and sacrifice for my wife. We can't just say, well, I've got this one covered. I fell in love with her years ago. I felt this really warm, emotional sensation in my heart, and and I'm still married to her, so I must love her, right? (laughs) Guys, sorry to say that's not how it works. You need to understand, men, that this is a moment by moment. This is a never-ending act of my will to sacrifice myself and to sacrifice my own desires 
for her. But I want you to know there's much more to it than that. Paul wisely chose not to just leave this verse like that because he knows that you will say exactly what I just did. Well, I married her. I must still love her. I'm still with her. But he knows that you will say that. And so what he did is just as he did with the wives a couple of weeks ago, he completes his thought by giving us a model to use as a pattern for our love. And this is most interesting. You're not left to wonder what sacrificial love looks like. He doesn't leave you to wonder what it means to actually love and sacrifice for your wives. How are you to love your wives? How are you to love your wives? Take a look again at verse 25. What does it say? Husbands, love your wives how? As Christ has loved the church and he did what? Gave himself up for her. Doesn't this seem like an impossible command for us to follow? Guys, can you really do that? Can you really get that? Doesn't it seem like it's impossible? I mean, obviously, none of us would say that he has the capacity to love his wife with the same perfect love, with the same perfect affection for which Christ loved the church, can we? And I know that that's true. And even though that is true, we have to acknowledge that because the Holy Spirit lives within us men, we have the ability to love to some extent with the love of Jesus Christ. Do you see? With some extent, to some extent, you have the ability to do that through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit living within you. And that remarkably high standard, listen, it is the pattern for us as we consider our love for our wives. Whether it seems attainable or not to you, that is the pattern. That is the standard. That is the model. So I want us to just take a minute. I want us to think about that because this is very important. How is it that Christ loved the church? How is it that Christ loved his church? Well, I think any discussion about Christ's love for the church has to begin in Romans chapter 5. So I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to take a look at verse 8, a verse that is very familiar to many of you. It says this, but God shows his love for us in this, meaning the church, that while we were still sinners, what happened? Christ died for us, do you see? So while he, we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So obviously, if the husband's love for his wife is to be like Christ's love for the church, he must then be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice, giving even his own life for her if necessary. Even giving up his own life for her if that's what it takes. Because that's what Christ did, isn't it? Christ gave himself up for the church to the most supreme extent. And that alone, my friends, is a nearly impossible standard for us. Think about that. How can we get to the place where we can say that I will give up my very life for her? But I do want you to know, I think there probably are many men here right now this morning who would be willing to give up their very lives for you ladies. Do you know that? There are men here, some of you have husbands here, who would give up their very lives in loving sacrifice to protect and to preserve you. But there's something here in chapter 5 of Romans that I think makes the standard even more difficult for us. I want to share that with you. At what point does Romans 5, 8 tell us that Christ died for his church? At what point did he die for his church? Thank you. <laughs> he died for his church while we were still sinners. Isn't that interesting? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says that he died while we were all still sinners. So what that means then, in other words, is that before the church had done anything to commend herself to Christ, he loved her to the extent that he was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for her, do you see? Before she had done anything to commend herself to him, he loved her to the extent that he was willing to die for her. At that point, that he gave himself up for her. At the point that he was willing to sacrifice for her, the church had done absolutely nothing to deserve the love of Christ. She had done absolutely nothing for him. He did not love us because we were more desirable than 
than other people. He did not love us because we were any better than anyone else. He loved us even though we did not deserve his love. You see, there's nothing attractive about us. There was nothing about us that made Christ single us out and pick us out. There was nothing attractive about you that drew Christ to you. He loved the church not because of her beauty. He loved you not because you were so wonderful. He loved you because not because you had done anything good or wholesome to earn his favor. He loved you because it is his nature to love. He loved you because it is his nature. Despite the fact that your very first inclination was to dishonor him, he loved you anyway. Isn't that the kind of love you have for your wives, husbands? Isn't that the way it is? <laughs> uh, rabbinic law at the time of Christ allowed a man to divorce his wife for any reason or no reason at all. The Talmud, which is the codification of Jewish law, specifically says that a man can divorce his wife because she spoiled his dinner. Can you imagine it? The man sits down at the table and he finds in front of him on his plate a burnt piece of meat and he says, that's it? I've had enough. We're getting divorced. This is the last time you'll burn my meat. According to the rabbi Hillel, who was one of the most highly regarded religious leaders of the time, a man could divorce his wife for something as nonsensical as that. Something as foolish as that. In fact, a man could divorce his wife simply because he found another woman more attractive. Furthermore, the woman had no need to consent. Her consent was not required. It didn't matter what she thought. She was not entitled to half of the marital assets. The man simply had to write her a bill of divorce. He handed it to her and he sent her on her way. And as long as the man was pleased with his wife, he kept her around. As long as she was careful not to burn his dinner, he kept her around. As long as she was careful to make herself more attractive than everyone else, he kept her around. But at the point, if at any point he disapproved of her, he could just simply send her away. Thanks for your time. It was nice knowing you get out of here, would you please? Listen, we laugh because it seems so foolish. But the unfortunate truth is that the typical husband today doesn't do much better than that. The typical husband today loves his wife a lot that same way, doesn't he? As long as she fulfills what he seeks from the relationship, he loves her. As long as she's giving him what he wants... He loves her, typically not in the biblical sense of the agape love, but he has a strong affection for her as long as she gives him what he wants. But as soon as she stops giving him what he wants, he moves on to somebody else. You see? As soon as he gets tired of her, as soon as he stops feeling fulfilled, he moves on to someone else. But the model of Christ's love for the church says, I love you even though you have done absolutely nothing to please me at all. Do you see this, man? Christ loved the church. And he sacrificed and he died for her before anyone was baptized. He loved the church and he sacrificed and died for her before anyone had ever taken communion. He loved the church and he sacrificed and died for her before anyone had ever gone to Sunday school. He loved her no matter what. He loved her before she did anything for him. He loved her before she did anything to please him. And men, I know that that seems like an unbelievably high standard for husbands, doesn't it? Isn't that an unbelievably high standard for us? But listen, I don't send her away because she burns my dinner. I don't send her away because she's not as attractive as she used to be. And there's someone else who's starting to give me a little bit of attention. I don't send her away. I don't turn my back on her. I don't stop loving her because she's no longer meeting my needs. 
That's not how it works. She is my wife, and for that reason alone, I love her, and I sacrifice for her day in, day out, moment by moment by moment, with a deliberate choice of my will, using my own volition to sacrifice for her. And if at any point I claim that I no longer love my wife, friends, if at any point I stop giving myself up sacrificially for her, I am in clear violation of the teaching of Scripture, and I need to repent. You see? It's not an option for the husband to love his wife. It's a command. It's a command with the authority of the Holy Spirit. He loves her and he sacrifices for her even though she has stopped trying to make herself look attractive to him. He loves her and he sacrifices for her even though she no longer seems to want intimacy as often as she once did. He loves her and he sacrifices for her even though she rarely says a kind word about him anymore. She never notices how blue his eyes are anymore. She never notices his rippling pecs and his killer abs. At the end of our discussion about wives last week, I told you that it's a really serious responsibility to be the husband of a godly woman. Did you know that? And I want you to know that Peter helps us to understand what that looks like in his first epistle. You see, as the wife submits to her husband, he lovingly sacrifices for her, and I want you to see how it looks. Let's go to First Peter 3 and verse 7. Husbands, listen, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you in the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. We could go on for days with this particular passage, but I want you to know that in this passage, Peter shares with us two principles, fellows, that I want to share with you this morning. First of all, you need to understand, men, You are to live with your wives in an understanding way. Did you see that? You are to live with your wives in an understanding way. And in a practical sense, what that means is that a husband should be understanding of, a husband should be sensitive to his wife's needs. Guys, she has needs. But not only that, you must be committed to meeting her needs. It's not just enough to be able to identify them. You need to be committed to meeting them. But in order for the husband to meet the woman's needs, he needs to first understand her. Do you see? He has to understand her feelings. Try to figure that one out, guys. You have to understand her feelings. You have to understand what brings her joy. You have to understand what what her fears are. You have to understand her hopes. You have to understand her dreams. You have to know what makes her happy, guys. Listen, if you don't listen to your wives, you don't understand them. Did you hear that? If you don't listen to your wives, you don't understand them. Can you truly say that you understand her? Can you truly say that you've listened closely enough to know her hopes, her aspirations, her fears, and her dreams? You may be surprised to know, guys, that washing your dirty laundry and cleaning your house, cooking your dinner every night, may not be the place where she finds her greatest joy and her greatest fulfillment. Don't make the mistake of wrongly believing that you understand her heart. Don't make the mistake of wrongly believing that you know her hopes and that you know her dreams. You have to dig those out, guys. You have to ask. It's going to require something of you. It's going to require that you listen to her. You have to be purposeful. You have to ask questions. You have to invest in her. And this is where the concept of sacrificial love really becomes important. Because I want you to know that listening to your wife and understanding her and committing yourself to meet her needs is going to cost you something. Did you know that? Have you ever noticed that she's not always ready to speak at the exact same time you're ready to listen? I'm not sure why that is. 
Sometimes she's not ready to share her feelings until you're ready to doze off at night. Sometimes she wants to be heard when you've just walked in the door and you want to change your clothes and put your feet up for a few minutes and she has something to say. And I want you to know that if that's the case, you make that sacrifice and you give that to her. You sacrifice for her. You listen to her. Sometimes she just has stuff she needs to say. Sometimes she just has stuff she needs to get off of her shoulders. You don't always have to fix her problems. Just listen to her. Do you do that, guys? How often do you sacrifice just listening? Just shut your mouth and listen to her. Let her say what's on her heart. You don't have to solve any issues for her. Just let her get it out. Listening to her is the key to living with her in an understanding way. Do you see? Because if you don't listen to her, you do not understand her. Now, let me share with you another principle of living with her in an understanding way. Is that enough for you guys already? Let me share another principle as if you haven't already been overloaded. But this is very important. Guys, please listen. You need to understand your wife is not an idiot. She's not intellectually inferior to you. Don't talk down to her. Don't patronize her. Her opinions matter. Her feelings matter. I want you to know that she has wisdom that she can share with you. You don't know everything. A godly husband <laughs> a godly husband will humble himself and he will listen to his wife. Did you know that? It's good for you to do that, guys. It's good for you to stop and listen. It's good for you to take her advice. It's good for you to listen to what she says and examine it carefully. A godly husband will value the input of his godly wife. Well, the godly man understands his wife. I want you to know that Peter says that he also shows honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. This is important to know too. And I think this concept is really one that's lost on people today. Honestly, and I think one of the reasons that it's lost on people today is because of our we've got kind of a liberated nature in our culture, don't we? I mean, everyone is equal. And truthfully, though men and women are equal, I, we do know that. We do acknowledge that. And they especially are equal spiritually, generally speaking. The man and the woman are not equal physically. It's, it's just true. I know there are a lot of women out there that could wail on me. I get that. But generally speaking, men are stronger than women physically, right? Women are generally physically weaker than men. And because of that, I want you to know that you're probably not going to find my wife using the chainsaw and dragging tree limbs around the yard at my house. You're probably not going to see my wife doing repairs on the lawnmower and the snowblower. You're not going to see her carrying bags of rock salt to the basement for the water softener. Are you listening, guys? Do you know why? Because physically, she's weaker than I am, and one way that I like to show her honor is by sheltering her from that kind of work. I want to shelter her from those kinds of things. Listen, she is better than that. She deserves far better than that, and she is too precious to me to allow her to do that. She is too refined for that. She has no business doing that kind of thing in my house. I don't want her to do things that are not fitting of her physically weaker position, do you see? To some extent... I think that men have lost that. And to some people, I know that that probably sounds a little bit old-fashioned, but I think she appreciates that. I think she appreciates that, if I'm being honest with you. I think she appreciates the fact that I don't expect her to clear the snow from the driveway. I think she appreciates the fact that I don't expect her to change the oil in the cars. Husbands, may I be so bold as to suggest to you that it is okay for you to act like a gentleman around your wife? May I suggest that to you? Husbands, may I be so bold to suggest that it's okay for you to treat her as the weaker vessel. She may appreciate it if you would open the car door for her from time to time. 
Because that's what it means for you to honor her as the weaker vessel. That's what it means for you to honor her as the one who is weaker than you physically. It means that you also provide for her with your strength. You see? Not only do you provide for her, you provide for her with your strength. It means that you provide for her out of your physical strength, and you may even be able to add your emotional and spiritual strength to that, although we'll not dig into that this morning. So a husband's love for his wife is to be self-sacrificial. It's not at all contingent on the woman's physical beauty. It is not at all contingent on her service to her husband. We love her anyway. We understand that this love is to be understanding of her aspirations. We know that it's supposed to be understanding of her intellect and of her emotions. We know that it's to be considered of the fact that she is physically weaker and it should show a level of protective strength physically and emotionally and spiritually. We know all those things. You see, she's submissive to her husband in all things, right guys? She's submissive to her husbands in all things, and so you then, as men, as the husband, bear the responsibility of protecting, of leading, and of caring for her in all things, you see? If she's going to submit to you in all things, then you bear the awesome responsibility of leading her in all things, do you see? It's a heavy responsibility, and you need to understand what that means. It means that the truly godly husband is humble, and that he has to be lowly. The truly godly husband would have to be because the bottom line is that in order for him to fulfill his obligation to love and to continually sacrifice for his wife means that he must live in a constant state of denying himself. Did you hear that? Listen, as you walk through life and you endeavor to become more and more like Christ, you have to learn to die to yourself to a greater extent. You have to learn to die to your own desires and your own passions, guys. You need to know that. Listen, husbands, when you feel left out and when you feel neglected in the family and you don't get the attention you once got and you endure the sadness, you endure the sting of that exclusion without letting on at all that you've been hurt, That's what it means to die to yourself. Did you hear that? When you do something that you think is good and it's intended to be helpful for your wife and to your family and it goes unappreciated, maybe even mocked, and you take it quietly, that's what it means to die to yourself. When you say something that people take out of context or in a way that you didn't intend it and they're offended by that and you refuse to allow bitterness to well up in your heart that's dying to yourself. When you say something and share your advice, you share your opinions, and they're totally disregarded, you have to die to yourselves, guys. You've been in an argument where your integrity has been unfairly called into question and assaulted, and you endure it because you want to protect your wife from shame and from embarrassment. You're learning what it means to die to yourself. When you're wrong, and you can humbly receive correction from your wife without feeling bitter and angry about it, I want you to know that you're learning to die to yourself. That's what it means, guys, to be continually loving and to be continually sacrificing for your wife. No price is too high for her. There's no price that is too high. You see, for a husband to love like this, he must be willing to sacrifice his own pride. He must be willing to sacrifice his own personal desires in favor of those of his wife. Do you see that? You could never do it otherwise. And I want you to know that that's not easy. And especially if you're a strong guy, if you're the kind of guy who in the marketplace is a confident and well-respected leader. 
Ladies, listen, if you have found a man like that, if you have found a man like this, you have found a godly man and you should gladly submit to him in all things. You see, you should honor him and you should do your very best to make sure that all of his needs are met because you have a godly man. Let's take a look at verse 26. It says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So not only is the love of Christ for the church a sacrificial love that requires constant dying to yourselves, it's also a love that that has a cleansing and a sanctifying effect on her. This is important, guys. Christ loved the church so that he could make her pure and holy. That's what this verse is telling us. He loved the church so that he could make her pure and holy. And verse 26 tells us how he cleansed the church and how he made her pure and how he made her holy. How does he do it? He washes her with what? He washes her with the word of God. Husbands, you need to understand it is your responsibility to put your wives in a position where they are being washed and they are being cleansed by the word of God. And if you are not taking your wife to a church where she is able to receive accurate and honest teaching from the Word of God that she may be pruned and purified and made strong. You are not loving her in the way that God intends. You have to ensure that she, first above all things, receives godly instruction. You have to be sure that she's trained. You have to be sure that you yourselves are spiritually mature enough that you can discern the difference between good and bad teaching so that you can help her. How are you going to protect her in that area if you yourself don't know? You need to be strong enough that you're prepared to have deep and meaningful discussions with her about spiritual things and about the Word of God. You need to be skilled enough, men, in the Word of God that you can use it to guide her and lovingly correct her. You need to be prepared to answer her difficult questions. You need to be prepared to have deep spiritual conversations with her. That's the point of you loving her sacrificially. That's the point of the whole thing. It's to bring your wife to a place of spiritual maturity. That's the point of the whole thing. Guys, it is important for you to know that as her husband, you are responsible to keep her pure. You are responsible to keep her pure. Guys, you must never put your wives in a place where you are exposing them to temptation. You should never take her to places of entertainment where she'll be tempted with certain lusts or certain feelings. You should never put her in a place where she will be tempted to become drunk, according to Ephesians 5.18. You should never put her in a place where she'll be provoked to anger, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, guys. Because you know where those temptations are, and you know what those temptations come from. You should never deliberately incite your wife to anger. You should never deliberately irritate her or get her all riled up. You're inciting her to sin. You're tempting her to sin. And if you know that she's driven to anger by you leaving the seed up, don't do that. Right? Don't incite her. If you know that she's incited to anger by you just taking your socks off and you know what I'm talking about, leaving them in a big ball and throwing them down the laundry, don't do that. If that incites her to anger, why would you do that? Why would you tempt her? And I want you to know that there are certain words, guys, you know what they are that will light her fuse instantly, don't you? 
There are certain things that you can say to her that will set her off in a moment. There are certain things that you can say to her that you know are going to push her buttons and to make her mad. Don't say those words. I know that sounds funny, but guys, that's your responsibility. Even though she may have offended you, even though she may have made you so angry, you have to die to yourself and you can't give expression to that. Do you see? Because you're protecting her and you're sheltering her from the temptation to commit sin and to commit the sin of thumos. You remember the sin of rage and just reacting. Very quickly, I want to share with you one more thing. Let's take a look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now listen, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished, or but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And I don't think we need to spend a great deal of time on this, but I do want to make sure that we address a couple of things here. You don't have to look very far to see how much time and money we spend and we invest in caring for ourselves, do you? And caring for our own bodies. That's a huge industry. We spend a lot of money. We spend a lot of time caring for our own bodies and our own needs. And verse 29 tells us that we feed it and we cherish it. And that word cherish comes from the, from the word falpo. And what it means is to warm or to brood. And you can picture a mother holding her baby close and comforting it, comforting it and warming it. And that's really a good picture of how we treat our own bodies when you think about it. You see, we cherish them. We cherish our own bodies. When our own bodies are hungry, what do we do? We feed them. Probably more often than we should. We probably do it when they're not hungry, if you're anything like me. When your bodies are sick, what do you do? You coddle them. You comfort them. You hit your finger with a hammer. You hold your finger close and you tend to it and you wrap it with ice. I want you to think of the money and the resource that you've spent in your life feeding, exercising, clothing, comforting, and caring for your own body You may be stunned if you would stop and think about that for a moment. We provide for our bodies almost without any limit at all. And Paul says this is a perfect picture of how you are to care for your wife. Do you see, guys? There's nothing too costly. You provide for her. That's your responsibility as her husband. And it's a very, very basic and very important responsibility. That is one of the basic responsibilities, men that you provide for your wife. God feels very strongly about that. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5.8, the Word tells us that the man who does not provide for his own family has denied the faith, and he's what? Worse than an unbeliever. The one who doesn't care for his own family, for his own wife and his own children, has denied the faith, and he's worse than an unbeliever. Friends, that's very strong language. A godly husband provides for his wife, and he cares for her, and he nurtures her, and he puts his arms around her, and he warms her, and he comforts her, and he cares for her to the same extent that he would care for his own body, which is exactly what his wife is. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore, a man will leave his mother and father, and he will hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. When you care for your wife, you are caring for your own body. No husband has ever not cared for his own body. And the husband and the wife are one flesh. You must care for your wife. Your one body. When you refuse to provide for your wife, when you refuse to comfort her and care for her, you need to know that you're refusing to care for your own body. When you neglect to care for her, you're neglecting your own body. And a husband who does that, ladies, is not 
a godly husband. In fact, he's worse than an unbeliever. Ladies, I'm going to say this one more time. You must never marry an ungodly man. Ladies, you must never marry an ungodly man. You must never do that. So in conclusion, ladies, if you have a husband who lives a life of continual sacrifice, giving himself up for you, if you have a husband who attempts to listen to you and who attempts to understand you, if you have a husband who shows you physical, emotional, and spiritual protection as the weaker vessel, ladies, if you have a husband who humbly dies to himself, laying down his own pride and his own desires for you, if you have a husband who sanctifies you and cleanses you and teaches you and prunes you with the Word of God, if you have a husband who protects you from the temptation to sin, if you have a husband who provides for you, who cares for you, who comforts you as if you were his very own body, is there any sacrifices too great for you to make for that man? Is there anything that's too much for him to ask? If he's that guy, he's a godly man. He's a godly man. What woman would not want a man like that? What woman would not passionately desire to keep his attention? What woman would not want to satisfy that kind of husband? What woman would not submit to that kind of a husband in all things? And ladies, if you have a husband like that, I want you to know that you have a godly husband. He's not perfect. Occasionally, he's going to leave his socks in that obnoxious little ball. Occasionally, he's going to leave the seat up. There might be times when you feel like he's not really listening to you. But a godly husband is God's best for you. And he will be far more likely to be the man of your dreams than anyone else. Cherish him. Hold on to him. Submit to him in all things. Father, I thank you for the godly men, the godly husband, the godly dads that you've placed right here in this church body. I pray, Lord, that you would fill their hearts with the love of Christ. Pray, God, that you would help us to understand the great and the awesome responsibility of becoming a godly husband and to lead and to love and to care for godly wives and a godly family. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen every marriage represented here today as we not only hear your word, but as we go from this place and apply your word to our lives, we pray. In 